The Alpilot's Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 3. Time for a little more self-indulgence, as this is an auspicious month for aviation anniversaries in the old pilot's world. We last left my logbook tale as I completed the F-4 Phantom II Operational Conversion Unit and received my posting to the wilds of Scotland to join number 43F Squadron, the Fighting Cox, at RAF Lucas in Fife. To put this into perspective, it was May 1978, the year that Space Invaders became a thing, that the movie Close Encounters came out, and the very first Garfield comic strip cartoon was published. Although I didn't know it at the time, it was also the anniversary of the very first flight of the Phantom II. It was on May the 26th, 1955, that four Navy officers arrived at the McDonnell Douglas offices and, within an hour, had presented the company with a set of requirements for a new all-weather fighter. They wanted a fleet defence fighter that could patrol 250 miles from its carrier, loiter there for two hours and be capable of bringing down anything that might come its way. Donald Douglas had previously lost out to Chance Vought with an aircraft design, but they had continued to work at building an aircraft that they felt the military actually needed. With the funding available, the design progressed into the XF-4H1, which made its maiden flight on May the 27th, 1958. I was three years old. In May, 20 years later, I had joined my first fighter squadron to fly F-4Ks, or as the RAF designated them, the Phantom FG-1, referring to its roles as a fighter and a ground attack aircraft. 43 Squadron had been reformed and converted to the F-4 in 1969, when the 20 aircraft that had been earmarked for HMS Eagle were diverted to the Royal Air Force after the cost of refitting the carrier to fly the Phantom became too high for the government to stomach. After the arrival of the Sepicat Jaguar GR1s, the RAF F-4s gave up their ground attack role and became purely an air defence asset. When I started flying on 43, the aircraft was still in their youth, being only nine years old. But when I did my last flight on them some eight years later, they were definitely starting to show their age. The squadron I had joined had an impressive history. It had first been formed on the 15th of April 1916 in the shadow of Stirling Castle in Scotland and it operated various types until a few months later it was equipped with the Sopworth 1.5 Strutter and deployed to the Western Front to carry out fighter reconnaissance duties. During the First World War it flew the Sopworth Camel and the Snipe as well, but distinguished itself, producing ten fighter aces. After the war it was reformed with Snipes, but was soon given the Gloucester Gamecock, from which it gained its name and distinctive black-and-white checkers. As the Second World War loomed, the fighting cocks were flying the Hawker Hurricane, 
and in early 1940 they were the first squadron to down an enemy aircraft over British soil. 43 covered the retreat from Dunkirk and then fought in the Battle of Britain from the famous fighter airfield of RAF Tangbia, near the south coast and in the thick of the fighting. As a youngster, and after the old airfield had been relegated to become a parachute dropping target, it also became home to number 623 Gliding School, and from its historic runways, I was to fly my first ever solo flight in a glider. I was there in 1968 when the airfield officially closed. As the RAF ensign was lowered for the final time, a single Spitfire flew over in salute. 43 was to continue on, however, and by the end of the war they had been based from Scotland to Sicily and many points in between. At the conclusion of the war they were disbanded only to reform in the jet age, first with Gloucester Meteors and then with the Hawker Hunter, with much of their flying being done in the Middle East out of Aden. When they moved from there it was to reform with the Phantom at Lucas. In my quiet moments I would leaf through the old handwritten squadron diaries, which were kept in glass cases in our crew room, and marvel at the exploits of those pilots who had gone before. Being tall and with a fairly new uniform, I was soon given the formal duty of squadron standard bearer. The standard was the equivalent of the regiment's colour, a traditional rallying point in battle. This beautiful heavy silk flag was mounted on a long wooden staff topped with a golden eagle. On the standard, in fine silk thread, was embroidered the squadron crest and its battle honours, from the Western Front, Ypres and the Somme, to the Battle of Britain, North Africa and Anzia. When the squadron was disbanded recently, Following the retirement of the F-3 tornado from service, the standard was laid up in the Church of the Holy Rood in Stirling, the squadron's birthplace. Joining such a famous unit was daunting enough, but in addition they had a strong cadre of very experienced crews. Apparently they hadn't had to put up with any new pilots for some time and weren't too pleased to have the irksome job of bringing a new driver up to combat-ready status. For me, it meant another six months of training. Our venerable squadron QFI, John Abel, was the first to be subjected to my flying skills with a dual check before the lovely navigator Bob Lawley led me around the diversions that we might use in the local area. It seemed that it was traditional to beat up each airfield in turn, a task that I enjoyed enormously. Then came my night dual check, which, after managing to get all the upper air work done, concluded with a number of night circuits in various configurations and heights. Nearing the end of the trip, I heard a loud metallic clang from the left side, and after a nervous glance outside, before I remembered it was night and I couldn't see anything, I spotted the left engine was getting very hot indeed. With the turbine gas temperature reaching 900 degrees centigrade, John suggested that I shut it down and we could make the next circuit a single-engined one to land. 
It turned out that the two-sticker, the aircraft on the squadron that could be flown from the back seat, had a dodgy ramp controller. The moving ramp was part of the intake design that would deflect at high speed to create a series of supersonic shock waves inside the intake, which slowed the air entering the engine and improved its performance. However, when the ramp cycled itself at circuit speed, it disrupted the airflow sufficient to surge the engine, leading to the overtemperature. For me, it was my first ever engine failure, but listening to John's calm voice and his matter-of-fact approach to the emergency taught me a very valuable lesson. It would serve me well in the several engine failures that I would deal with in the future. Very quickly, I was back into training mode and off with Andy Kirk for the first of my convex trips, learning about the sharp end of being a fighter pilot. I had tried this trip the day before, but the mic tell lead that connected the electrics in my helmet to the aircraft had stopped working soon after takeoff, left with no way to communicate to either my navigator or the outside world. I tried shouting to my nav and even took off my helmet to try and fix the problem. This is when I discovered the noise levels that existed in the cockpit of an F4. Inside the protective earpieces of the helmet, the cockpit noise averaged around 90 decibels. I can't quite describe how painful it was to momentarily experience the unadulterated noise of two mighty spade jet engines only a few feet behind me. I quickly realised how useless it was to try and shout over it, so resorted to scribbling on a sheet of paper and holding it up in one of the few gaps between the cockpits where the nav could see through. I assumed that I got my message through, so headed back to Lucas and did a no-radio join and landed off a green flare shot from the runway controller's caravan. As an aside, I reflew the trip with Andy Kirk, but it was only today that I looked to see who I flew my very last phantom trip with some eight years later. By an amazing coincidence, it was also Andy. By then, I was both a qualified flying instructor and weapons instructor, and I was filling in for a few weeks flying with the operational conversion unit as a phantom flying instructor before deploying to Australia to work with the Royal Australian Air Force. Andy, now a squadron leader, was doing a quick refresher course before taking up a flying post. We did an air combat sortie together, and it was a very fitting end to my time with the Phantom. I should get back to the beginning, though. Whilst I was thoroughly enjoying myself driving this manic fire-breathing beast around, the summer was drifting by. It was only for a short time in midsummer when the coastal waters off Scotland rose above 10 degrees and we got a break from flying in our full immersion suits. The rubberized, uncomfortable gear that would keep us alive should we eject over the North Sea and the thick bunny suits we wore underneath would keep us warm enough, but the cockpit of the Phantom wasn't like a cold sea. We got appallingly hot and sweaty. The room where we kitted up before a trip was testament to the blood, sweat and tears that went into the average trip, and it smelled like a wrestler's armpit. 
I learned new arts like airway refueling and fighting in an ECM, Electronic Countermeasures Environment, when 100 Squadron Canberras would delight in jamming both our radar and our radios whilst we blundered about trying to hunt them down. Apart from turning our radar scopes into a mess of green gloop, I have to admit that the radar generally looked like green gloop to me, they would try to trick us on the radio. They had a number of tactics, like pretending to be our fighter controller and giving false vectors, or better still, recording the controller and then playing instructions back to us. They played music to blot out our comms or just very loud electronic noises to cover up the voice of our controllers. Once I got my air combat dual check out of the way and the low-level manoeuvring tests passed, the flying became even more interesting. Now I could get my teeth properly into air combat and I loved nothing better than being able to rack six Gs around in full burner and get through a whole mission in only 45 minutes. Then the squadron deployed to the Norwegian Air Force Station at Gardermoen. I was allowed along, which was fantastic, my first overseas trip. We took a bunch of aircraft supported by two Hercules C-130s, one full of ground equipment and spares, and one with our duty-free bar. We knew from experience that booze was very expensive in Norway and that a lot of wheels could be oiled with a bottle or two of good Scottish whisky. The Norwegians were very good hosts and great pilots in their little Northrop F-5 fighters. Their airfield was surrounded with tall pines through which taxiways wove leading to the entrances of hangars that had literally been carved out of rock and were guarded by thick steel doors. Some of our equipment was stored in a small old-fashioned wooden-framed hangar and looking around inside I could see swastikas carved into the beams. Not some right-wing graffiti, but the official insignia of the Nazis who had occupied the airfield during the war. Back home it was more training for me. Night air-to-air refuelling and then came my first major NATO exercise, Northern Wedding. 43 Squadron was Sackland assigned, that's Supreme Allied Commander Atlantic, which meant we spent a lot of our time flying enormous distances to defend a fleet who often shot us down out of ignorance or spite. In this exercise there was a large NATO fleet punting around the eastern Atlantic area and I got the chance to test my bladder's capacity flying TASMO, that's Tactical Air Support for Maritime Operations, or ADOPS, Air Defense Operations, under the control of USS Forrestal and USS Mount Whitney. It was during one of these tanker-supported flights that I stayed airborne for 6 hours and 55 minutes, and could have found it a bit boring, except this mission was about to become the most exciting of my life so far. We had been capping, flying combat air patrol, some 50-odd miles away from the fleet and several hundred miles from our base, and it had been pretty quiet. There hadn't been many targets to intercept, and we were just drilling holes in the sky when our American controller vectored us off to look at something he described as some visitors from the east. Unsure what that meant, I was buoyed up by Tony my nerves, sudden interest in the proceedings. 
a pair of Tupolev Tu-95 Bears were bearing down, see what I did there, on the fleet. This was to be my very first Cold War intercept and as I swung our jet around onto the rearmost aircraft, I struggled to take it all in. The vast silver bombers sporting their classic red stars were descending in trail and were about to pass over the centre of the fleet. I sat on the wing of both these aircraft and the noise of the vast propellers filled the cockpit as they wended their way around at a mere thousand feet, presumably photographing the vessels of many NATO nations. It was truly a sight to behold, and I cursed that I didn't have a camera to record the event. Back home, having survived that bladder-busting mission, the average mission length that week of flying was over four hours, I realised that I'd done something that many pilots had never achieved. I'd seen the face of our Cold War enemy, and I wasn't even combat ready yet. That event was to come a few days later, with the successful flying of my Phase 3 Visident checkride. The Visident was a visual identification that, for the Phase 3 check, had to be flown against a lights-out target at night and at low level. Closing up using the radar, the pilot would follow the navigator's instructions until they became visual and could continue to close into close formation. It required a gentle touch, smooth, accurate flying, plus the difficult task of maintaining a good instrument scan whilst visually looking out into the inky blackness for anything that resembled an aircraft. The check successfully out of the way, and I was fully operational, but there was one more task yet to perform, one not quite so taxing. On Friday, after ground training, the whole squadron assembled in the crew room to watch me quaff a quart of beer from the large pewter op-pot. Without taking it from my lips and draining it until it could be held upside down over my head. But the most fun moment was shaking the squadron commander's hand and receiving the squadron badge to wear on my flying suit, the famous fighting cock with the squadron motto, Gloria Finis. Glory is the end. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to support Plain Tales. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>